Amen. In Acts chapter 15, the church leaders, which would have included both the apostles and, and the elders of the local churches, gathered together in the city of Jerusalem to take part in a very important council. This council had gathered together for the purpose of addressing a problem that had arisen in the early church. This, this problem was theological in nature, which is usually kind of the type of problems that churches often have, theological problems. And, and in the midst of this, it was, it was a problem that really sought to possibly not only divide, but even destroy Christ's church. And uh, the problem really stemmed from a disagreement or a misunderstanding. See, on one side, you had a group of people that, that really believed that in order to be born again, that is to enter into the kingdom of God, to be a part of God's family, all you had to do is repent and believe in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Men believing that were people like Peter and Paul and Barnabas. Maybe you've heard of those gentlemen before. Uh, on the other side was a whole group of people that, that, that were Jewish believers, and they said, no, we believe that in order for somebody to enter the kingdom of God, they must repent and believe, but there's more things they must do. They must also be circumcised, and they must also follow the law and the Torah, and they, there's all kinds of different dietary laws that they need to follow, and ceremonial laws as well. So you can imagine, this was a huge problem, because it was the very integrity of the gospel message was really at stake. And so all of these godly men got together, and they began to debate over this, the very first church council. And, and then when they finally got to the end of it, they made a conclusion, and here's the conclusion they came to. I preached on this last week, and so if you you haven't heard that, please go back. But here was their conclusion. Their conclusion was, leave the Gentiles alone. Quit messing with them. Quit adding more things for them to be able to do, for them to be born again. He says, because, here's the conclusion, whether you are a Greek or whether you are Gentile or whether you are Jewish, we're all saved the same way, by grace, through faith alone. Amen? And so that was the conclusion. But then they came to this second conclusion, and that's what we want to look at today. Before we talk about the reveal at the very end and t tell you why you're really here, uh, about what announcement we're going to make, we're going to look at the Word of God and try to figure out what was it that they came to? What is it that they came to realize? What was their other conclusion? Well, we see this conclusion actually given in a list of commands. And the list of commands, you find them here in verse 20. You find them again repeated in this chapter in verse 29. And then later in actually chapter 21, the same list of four things are actually given. Let's take a look at that for a moment. If you will, in verse 20, it says, but, and I'm going to add the word we, because this is what they're saying, but we, meaning the council, made up of primarily uh, Jewish believers, he says, he says, should write, they're about to write a letter to them, which is a group of Gentile churches, believing churches, we should write to them too, and then he gives a list of four things they are to abstain from. He says they are to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, that is all very strange, is it not? Strange for a couple different reasons. One thing that immediately strikes me is in verse 19, he says, do not give any more commands to these Gentile believers. And then he turns around and gives four more commands to the Gentile believers. So this is weird. What is he doing? Two different things. Verse 19, he is addressing the issue of salvation. How is a person enter into the kingdom of God? person enters in by grace through faith alone. In verse 20, he's speaking and referencing to those who are already in the kingdom. 
those who are already believers of Jesus Christ. And what he ends up saying is, hey, listen, works were not necessary or important for you in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but now that you are a believer, those works are significant. What he's actually saying is this. He's actually telling them, now that you are in the kingdom of God, now this is how you ought to live as a believer in Jesus Christ. So that's, in essence, what he's saying. But what do all of these things mean? That's another difficulty. These are hard things to understand. In fact, even commentators and different theologians, they disagree on much of the meaning here. There's kind of two different sides. On one hand, uh, you have a group of people who, in essence, say this. They say that these are ethical and moral laws. So they look at them, and here's what they say. They say, to abstain from the things polluted by idols speaks of the sin of idolatry. Well, That makes sense, right? Hey, don't go around worshiping false gods. Okay, we're okay with that. Uh, Then he gets to the next one. He says, and and, and to abstain from what? Sexual immorality? Well, that's right. We kind of understand that too. That's a a bad thing to be able to do. Those holding this view, they'll have a problem problem with explaining what strangling means, right? Now, some women here might be like, I I can tell them exactly what that means, right? But but they have a hard time explaining it. They just kind of dismiss it. Then they get to the word blood, and in the word blood, they say, this is referring to murdering other people. So the view of this be, these being moral laws is in essence saying what they were telling them is they were taking three of the Ten Commandments. They were telling them to serve no other God before the one true God, to, 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 to not commit adultery, and finally don't murder anybody. Well, those are probably important things, but the truth of the matter is these Gentiles didn't need to be reminded of that. They understood that they weren't supposed to murder somebody. In fact, uh, in Romans chapter 2, what does it tell us? That those Gentiles who do not have the law have a conscience, and God has written the law on their hearts. Uh, They knew it wasn't like they sat around killing everybody, and the church had to say, you know, you really ought not to kill. Oh, really? I've never heard that before. No, they understood all of these things. So the problem with this particular view is why? Why in the world would they only give them three of the Ten Commandments? Why not just reference all ten of them? Are they not to follow the rest of the law, the Ten Commandments, the moral laws? So it really doesn't seem to be a great explanation of the text. By the way, you guys are doing great, okay? Uh, first, first crowd, they, they were terrible. Um, second, second, first is moral law. The second is something a little bit different. This is the ethical. They were like, no, these aren't ethical commands. Rather, what these ultimately are is these are ritual commands. And the reason they get that is because when you go to the law of Moses, when you go to the book of Leviticus, there in, in chapters 18 and 19, all four of these laws are actually listed there. And the purpose of those was to be able to help God's people to remain clean and undefiled before God. So these were the practices. There you can read that they were not to eat any, or they weren't supposed to worship any false gods. They weren't supposed to eat meat that was dedicated to these gods. Uh, they weren't to marry people outside of the Jewish religion. They weren't ultimately supposed to uh, eat meat that had been strangled. What that refers to is, is how they would dispatch the animals that they were going to kill. They would bleed them out rather than to strangle and to mutilate them. And then, and then finally, blood referenced the fact that they weren't supposed to eat food that actually still had blood remaining in it. So all you 
I don't understand that. I understand it biblically, but that would have been really sad because a steak that's fully cooked is no steak at all, right? It's an eraser, all right? And so I, like, I, like my, I don't like erasers. And so, um, so the idea there is that this is, this is all in this command. These were all things that were ultimately given to them. And the idea of those that believe these are ritual commands, what they say is here's the reason for it. The idea is that these Gentiles were not bound to these Jewish laws. However, they should be careful with the religious freedoms that they have been given not to offend their Jewish brothers. We understand that, right? Look, every once in a while, and I say every once in a while, it's a rarity that another church will ask your pastor to come and preach. All right, it is a rarity. But most of them are not like our churches. We don't, we don't usually show up. I can't wear jeans and a shirt like I'm wearing now. They're wonderful Christians, but they wear suits and all those things. And, and, and sometimes they use the King James only. And when I get up there, I don't whip out the ESV. I don't get there and dress like this. They'd sit up there and go, what's that? What's that homeless heretic doing up there preaching in the pulpit, right? And so what I do is, is because I want them to hear the word, I don't want to be offensive to them. Uh, I have freedom here to be able to dress like this and look like a hobo. Thank you very much. Uh, but but to, to do these things, you're going to go because you want them to hear the message. You want them to hear the word of God. And in essence, that's what they say is happening here. So the, the truth is, is that's what it's saying. Well, certainly there's biblical precedence for this. We see in the book of, uh, we see in the, in the writing to Corinthians when Paul's writing, he actually says to them, uh, the debate was, can you eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? And he says, sure you can, because there's no such thing as idols. It's all made up in our head. You're worshiping all these things, but there's no real true gods. There's only one God, so go ahead and eat away. But then he sits there and he cautions them. And he says, but we must be very careful with our religious freedoms. And he says, because if it's going to cause my brother to stumble in any way, shape, or form, he goes, I'll never eat meat again. I don't want to do anything that's going to cause somebody to stumble or sin against their ultimate conscience. And so the question is, is, is this what it means? Well, it probably does, at least to a certain point. Because they would have had this problem within the church. Remember, the idea was that they were to be unified. Both Greeks or Gentiles and Jews were to be able to come together. And if one is sitting back going, I can't eat these things, and the other one's saying, they go, hey, man, party on. It's, it, we're, we're having a pig picking. It's going to be hard to be able to get these two groups ultimately together. So certainly they should sit back and go, you know what, we, we, we got to be careful with this. Uh, we need to not offend anybody. We have to watch what we do when we're around our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. But the answer to that is, but is that really what he's getting at? Well, see, it kind of falls apart a little bit because it works for most of those commands, but one of those commands it doesn't work with. For example, sexual immorality. If it was true for all of them, I mean, you, you can't imagine this council getting up, can you, and sitting there and going, hey, guys, you don't, you, you don't really have to follow these things. In fact, sexual immorality is fine, but just be careful that you don't do it in front of the Jewish people. Right? No, see, the problem with this is that none of these categories, none of these commands fit into any one of those two categories perfectly. They're not all moral laws, and they're not uh, all just kind of ceremonial laws. Instead, it's kind of a mixture of the two. So what does it mean? The best that I can understand is this, is that what he's really referring to is he's giving them commands to let them know that they ought no longer as believers in Jesus Christ to live for the same things and in the same ways they did before they came to faith in Christ. They are not to live. They are saved by grace through faith. But when you come to faith in Christ, there should be, ought to be a difference. Now, how do I get that? 
Well, because the four, those four commands that he's listing there is actually very descriptive of the way these pagans would worship. Remember something. It's not as though they were worshiping for the first time the moment that they became believers. All men and women worship. Now, when we're dealing with India, if we go over to India, we understand they're worshiping millions of different gods in Hinduism. And you can address them and talk with them. They're worshiping before they come to faith in Christ. You understand that, right? But do you know in America, they do the same thing. Whether you actually go to a shrine or you bow to a Buddha or anything else, all men, all women, all lost individuals worship some form of God, some type of idol before we come to faith in Christ. The question is not, do you worship? The question is, who do you worship? Or what is it that an individual worships? And so this is what was happening uh, here at this particular time. And so go through those laws again. They would go into these temples, which would scatter all the way through the Roman Empire. They begin to worship a particular idol. Uh, Some of them, they even had some that were dedicated to what? To the unknown idols, right? And say, hey, here's all the idols. You, you take your pick, but if you don't really know the name of them, you forgot them like Pastor Mike, he forgets everything, then you can worship this one over here. So that's where I'd be worshiping. What's the name of your God? I can't remember, all right? But you can just kind of sit over there and you begin to worship. And so here's what they were doing. And then when they would come together, they'd begin to worship, but then they would make sacrifices to these gods, animal sacrifices, and they would strangle and mutilate. It was demonstrating the way that they would make these sacrifices. Uh, Then they would take those, and then they would begin to do a little barbecue. Then they would have a big drunken get-together of all of them would get together, and they would eat, and they would celebrate, and everybody would be happy worshiping these false gods. And if that wasn't bad enough, at the very end of these, they would go, and then they would take these different temple priestesses, which were really nothing more than temple prostitutes. And then a part of their act of worship would be coming and being a part with them and taking part in sexual relationships with these particular priestesses. And, and, and they would come together. And so this was the way that they were worshiping. And so what they were saying is they were, in essence, saying once again, hey, guys, you bring nothing when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to do everything. And let me just repeat that again. For people who are coming to faith in Christ, yes, we must repent and believe, but there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. And I'm saying that because I know even recently somebody had said to me that I was just meeting, I was build up a conversation, and they go, you know, one day I'll come to faith in Christ, but I got to kind of get my stuff together before I do. And I said, with all due respect, you'll never get your stuff together until you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you come, he will regenerate your heart. He will change you from the inside in, out. He will take what was broken and he will fix it and he will, he, he will do even better than that. He will ex nihilo. He will create a new heart for you. He will give you a new heart that now desires the things of God, hates the things that are not of God, and he'll put his spirit inside of you so that you not only have the desire to do it, but now you have the power of God to be able to do the very thing you now want to be able to do. Amen, amen, amen? And so this is who we are. But at the same time, now he's sitting back and he's just basically sitting there and says, but guys, at the same time, I want you to know that you become empty-handed. There are things that you must do when you come to faith in Christ, how you must live your life now. In other words, he's saying, when you come to faith in Christ and you follow him, there are certain things, catch this, you must leave behind. There are acts, actions, pursuits, and idols that you and I must abandon in our pursuit of Christ. This is, in essence, what we call a life of holiness. We're not trying to earn God's favor. We have 
God's favor. Now imagine for a moment how encouraging this would have been to these Gentile believers. When they first heard the gospel by Peter and Paul and all these guys, it was so encouraging. Do you remember the first time it actually made sense to you when people were like, you don't have to do anything to be born again? Really? Remember, the Gentiles were outside looking in. They weren't part of the the covenant family. And they go, yeah, man, you just have to repent and believe. Come to faith in Jesus Christ. Really, how encouraging that must have been. Then you have these Judaizers that come over to them and say, hey, listen, they didn't. here's the rest of the story. The rest of the story that they didn't tell you is, yes, you have to repent and believe, but you also have to do all these other things. And then their hearts must have sunk because they thought it was just about repenting and believing. But now they have to become Jewish in, ex- in, in actuality, which means they'd have to leave everything about their culture. They'd actually have to leave their hometowns. They'd have to leave their families. They'd have to leave the people that they love. And so when this council comes and says, no, none of that is true. You're saved by grace through faith alone. You don't have to become Jewish to be able to do it. It'd be very similar for me to sit there and go, you want to come to faith in Jesus Christ today? You don't have to be a 47-year-old, middle-aged, balding man to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And everybody would go, amen, praise God, I don't have to be like him, right, to be saved. None of these external things have anything to do with salvation. And so they come together and they're encouraged. And here's why one of the reasons they're encouraged. Not only are the men encouraged because they don't have to be circumcised as adults and that they can continue with their pig pickings, but they're excited because now they get to remain in their own communities and share the same life-giving gospel with their friends and their families and their neighbors and the people that they work with. So that must have been a great encouragement to them to be able to do that. And so what he says is, in, in essence, with the second part, here's what he's saying. You can remain where you live when you come to faith in Christ, but you cannot remain who you are when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, you can live in the same community, drive the same car, you can live in the same house, you can speak the same language, you can go to the same schools. In fact, you're encouraged to be able to do all of those things. However, and you could take part in all those things that are morally neutral, but those things that are not of God, you must put away. You must put behind you. You must pursue holiness of God. We see examples of this all the way through the scriptures. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, remember a, man, a group of people, they want to be a disciple of Jesus, and they come to Jesus, and they go, hey, I want to follow you, but first got to go back home, and i got to bury my dead. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Follow after me. What was Jesus saying in that? Was he being insensitive? No, Jesus knew the heart of that man. And he knew that whatever reason he was wanting to go and do that before he follows Christ, he understood, he understood that that was the idol for him. Likewise, it's the same with the rich young ruler. Do you remember that? He, he, he says, how may I have eternal life? How many of you have ever shared the gospel this way? Sell everything you have and follow Jesus, and you'll be saved. Is it, was he saying that's the actual gospel? No. He knew the heart of man, and he knew that in order for him to come to faith in Christ, He had to get rid of his idol. He had to abandon his idol and turn and place his faith in the completed work of Jesus. We see this time and time again. Ephesians 4, 22. Remember this in our study of Ephesians. It says this, Paul calls the believers. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and and is corrupt through deceitful things. This is what we do all the way through the Christian life. We're constantly being sanctified, Amen. God has saved us. We are fully his. We are declared righteous, but we go through a process of sanctification where you and I are more like Christ today than we were five years ago. Yes, not who we ought to be, but we're not who we used to be. And so he's leading them through this. And now, let me tell you what the challenge of pursuing holiness is. People are going to give you grief. 
And what I mean that is people at your own work are to give you grief. I know even for my children, when they're, when they're around other kids on sports teams and, and they, they don't cuss and they don't do other things and they don't take part in some of those things, I'm, I'm praying that they don't. What do they do? They, they're like, well, you're the you're little, you're little Christian boy, aren't you? You're a little Christian boy. You're a little Christian girl, aren't you? And I always tell them to sit there and go, yeah, I kind of am. Actually, thank you very much. I appreciate you recognizing that, right? It's a good thing. And so people just sit there because you don't want to do all these things. And it, it's, it's meant to be a negative thing. But I'm not talking about the world. We should expect that. What I'm talking about, the difficulty is that I have found, is not the grief that you get from a lost world, but the grief that you get within an any given church. Is that the moment that you begin to pursue holiness, and you don't want to have to do certain things, and you don't want to be a part of certain things, all of a sudden now you are a legalist because of what you're doing. So you, you, you can get attacked. So you, you come and you have some believers come, maybe it's a small group and the guys get around and they all go fishing and all of a sudden a little curse word comes out and a little curse word over there comes out and all of a sudden next thing you know, they're just kind of throwing curse words all and all of a sudden you're like, I don't feel comfortable with this. And then you turn to them and you go, hey guys, can we kind of, you know, I know this is fishing, but can we kind of smooth this out just a little bit? Legalist. Legalist. Then small group gets together, and all of a sudden, small group is like, hey, man, we're just going to go. We're all going to hang out. We're not really going to be studying the Bible, so don't worry about that. <laughs> um, all we're going to do is we're going to get together, and it's going to bring, bring your favorite alcoholic beverage day, and we're just all going to bring it. Kind of sit there, and for whatever reason in your mind, you're like, well, I'm not a legalist. I don't think it's inherently evil, but this sounds a little weird. And so you sit there and go, no, I'm good. Legalist. Hey, you want to go see a movie with us? What you going to see? Well, I don't know. Well, well well, here's the movie, and we're gonna, I think we're going to see this. Well, what rating is that? Well, it's our rating. No, I think I'm good. I just don't really want to do it. Legalist, right? So anything that you do, that you have any kind of barrier, any kind of structure, or whatever, let me, let, me, let me say this. Every time somebody comes with the word legalist, I feel like a Nego Montoya from the Princess Bride movie. <laughs> have you ever, uh, some of you are familiar with this movie, some of you are not. If you've never seen the movie, it'll change your life. It, it, it'll change your life. And in the movie, there's a guy named Inigo Montoya. He's a Spaniard, you know, swordsman, right? And there's this other guy. I always forget his name. Don't yell it out. It's okay. But he's this really brainiac little dude. Looks a little like me, to be honest with you. Looks a little frumpy and bald. But anyway, and, um, and so he, he, he sits there, and he's, he's, he's going around, and he keeps using this word all the way through the movie. No matter what happens, a little ant walks by. Inconceivable, Right? A donkey flies by with wings. Inconceivable! And he's saying it through the whole thing. And finally, Anigo Montoya sits there and he goes, you keep saying that word. I don't think that word means what you think that word means, right? And here's what I would say with people that keep saying legalist all the time about everything, every pursuit of holiness. I do not think that word means what you think it means. Every time a person decides to be able to follow after Christ, and every time they sit back and go, man, I, I don't really want to listen to that or be a part of that or to do that, my conscience is going to be, I'm going to sin against my conscience and I just don't want to be a part of those types of things. They are not sitting back saying, I think God will love me or love me more because I'm not going to do those things. See, legalism is defined by trying to earn the acceptance of God by doing a bunch of righteous things. We've already settled that that's not the way that it works, amen? We're, we're, not, we're not accepted by God based on our righteousness, but whose? Christ's righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so when we come and we begin to talk about this whole legalism thing, is sometimes, and let me just say this for the record, not every time 
that you don't want to be a part of something that reminds you of the old life that you used to live is not ultimately legalism. Sometimes it has to do, and here's what I would say, it has nothing to do with trying to be, to earn God's acceptance. It's done rather because we have been accepted. It it, it is not because in some way we're not refraining from it because we think that God will be more satisfied with us. We're doing it because we are far more satisfied with him than the things that we used to pursue before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is precisely what he says in verse 19. He says, therefore, in the very beginning of this, in verse 19, he says, therefore, my judgment, uh, oh, I'm sorry, let me, let me back up, verse 31. He says, they take this letter, they go and they send it to the church. At church at Antioch, here's the people's response. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now, that seems weird. We can see why they would be encouraged by the first part of that letter. Hey, you're saved by grace through faith alone. But the second one, here's four things I want you to be able to do. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Why are they encouraged? Here's why they're encouraged. Because they've been there and they've done that. They were in that pursuit of idols and the weakness of the world. And you know what? They, they, they found themselves bankrupt. It never did what it promised to do. It wasn't a part of what they ultimately wanted. It wasn't ultimately fulfilling. And so now they rejoice because they're like, now this we can do. Because God has regenerated me. There's a desire in me to to flee those types of things and to be able to pursue God. Why? Because only Christ can satisfy. Only Christ can satisfy. You know, I think that I owe an apology. I think I owe an apology, and Nick, you can come at this time. I think I owe an apology because I preach a whole lot about grace and mercy. So much so that we actually renamed the church Mercy Hill, right? And yes, I know, maybe it's better, maybe Grace Hill and We've already had that conversation with several of you. But Mercy Hill, all right? And uh, it's, it's, you know, you just can't win for anything, can you? You're like, I, I like Mercy Hill. Well, I think Grace, Grace Hill would be a little bit better, aren't you? All right. And if I'm speaking about you, I'm speaking about you. So there we go. So love you so much. Love you, all right? And so, so, so the idea here is, let, let, me, let me just say this, is that in this, and when we come, I, I want to apologize if any way, shape, or form, that the preaching of God's grace, the preaching of God's mercy, of telling you you do nothing but repent and believe to come to faith in him, that you cannot add anything, you cannot bring anything, if somehow in your mind or something that I've said has led you to believe that you ought to continue in your sin so that grace may abound all the more. We are saved by grace. Let me get this. And we live by grace. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not sitting around trying to check all the box thinking he's going to love me more because I do this or he's going to love me more or I'm afraid he's going to love me less because I'm not doing these things or because I'm doing these things. I think you understand what I mean. I just confused myself. But you understand what I mean. He does not love you more when you do all the right things and he cannot love you less when you don't do all the right things. He just loves you. But what I would say with this is that but for the heart of a believer who is saved by grace through faith, They want to abandon and take off the things of the world and the sin that so easily binds and controls us and entangles us so that we can run the race of the pursuit after what we're running for, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. So we are saved by grace. We live by grace. But in living that grace, here's where the confusion is. Oftentimes, people are just like, dude, you need to preach more about grace, more about grace. You know, there are two sides of grace. Here's the first part. 
First part of grace is that grace that is extended to you to forgive you of all your sins. Amen? Amen. You mean he'll forgive everything? Absolutely. You repent and believe he'll forgive you. But there's another side of his grace that's not preached about enough. And that grace is to give you the power and the ability to live a life that God has called you to so that less forgiveness is needed. That's the grace of God as well. And I'm telling you today, if you've never experienced this type of grace for the first time, repent, turn. Here's the key. You turn to God. Oftentimes we talk about these two things. Well, you gotta repent, then you gotta believe. It's just one action. When you turn to God in faith, in fact, let me say one, one last verse. And we read it in verse 19. The, James says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. When you wanna be saved, you turn to God in faith. You sit there and say, you died for me. I'm a sinner. I need what you did for me. And when you do that, you are simultaneously turning your back on those idols that you used to worship. It's not doing one thing and then doing the other. It's simultaneously. You can't turn to faith in Christ. So the people who begin to preach this gospel, that say you first come to faith in Christ and later you deal with all those idols. No. You come to faith in Christ, you turn your back on that old life. Now, will you struggle with it every day of your life for the rest of your life? Yes. That's what his grace continues to give us for. But we become more and more like him as we continue to pursue a life of righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We love you. We thank you.